I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep. So I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Robots Radio presents... In 1951, director John Huston and stars Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn braved the African wilderness to find true love. In 2020, we visit the Irish Isle with the man himself. The film is the African Queen. The whiskey is Bogart's Irish whiskey. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are looking at the 1951 film, The African Queen. Do you, Charles, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Yes, sir. Do you, Rose, take this man to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. By the authority vested in me by Kaiser William II, I pronounce you man and wife. Proceed with the execution. Brad, how are you doing today, man? Man, I am doing wonderful. I just got done uh, watching some Bayern Munich versus some other German team that I don't remember the name of. Nice. It was a good time. Nice. I had no idea you were a soccer fan. Um, I, I actually told this to my friends. I don't think you could classify me as a soccer fan because I like I don't follow it, but I played the sport for like nine or ten years as a little kid. I know the basics of like formations and, you know, if they said the numbers to me like a 442 or a 4321, I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of know what that is. So, you know, I, I know enough to be competent at, at, at watching soccer. Wow. I had no idea. The yeah, things dude. we're learning about each other over yeah. the course of this podcast, I'll tell Bob, you. Bob, I am a man of many mysteries. <laughs> well, today we are looking at The African Queen, a movie that was not originally in our lineup for season three, Brad. Uh, We had reached out to this company called Bogart Spirits, uh, which has been on my radar for a while because it it seems right up our alley. They make a bunch of different spirits under the Humphrey Bogart name in collaboration with his estate. And they basically agreed to send us a couple bottles to review as long as we would feature their product on a regular weekly episode. And, you know, Brad, I like to think that we are men of principle, that we, we try to stick to our guns on our weekly episodes. We try to review whiskeys that are widely available that you can walk into any liquor store and purchase. And so when I went to write them back, I stood my ground and I said, yes, we will absolutely change everything about our podcast if you send us free whiskey. That's Because right. that's the kind of guy I am, Brad. Yeah, man. Free whiskey will literally get me to do a lot of things. <laughs> so we ended up uh, rearranging season three's format a little bit to include the African Queen. I really wish that we had been able to feature this whiskey back in season one when we did both Casablanca and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which are, in my opinion, Humphrey Bogart's two best movies and my favorite two Bogart movies. So we kind of we brainstormed a little bit about what Bogart movie should we feature? Should it be The Maltese Falcon or should it be The African Queen? And we came down on the side of The African Queen. 
This is the second John Huston movie that we've done on the podcast. As I've just said, it's the third Humphrey Bogart movie. Brad, had you heard of The African Queen prior to watching it for this podcast? Oh, yeah. This is, you know, this is one of those movies that like has like Hollywood legend just surrounding it. You know, like John Huston takes Catherine and Bogey out to Africa and the the shoot was terrible. And I think Catherine Hepburn was like really, really sick throughout a lot of the, the shooting. And it was just one of those things where it was a grind and it was just gruelingly difficult to get this f- movie filmed. Um, but I had never actually seen it myself, you know, aside from just hearing about it. So this was my first time viewing it. Oh, that's it's really interesting. I'm glad you've heard of it before. And you're right, Brad. I think that the story of the making of the African Queen is just as legendary as the movie itself. And honestly, I think it probably feeds into the movie's reputation because it was such a grueling shoot because John Huston was known for being that kind of guy that would just rough it. And, you know, in between takes, he was going out and hunting wild game and things like that. So it really adds to the overall mystique of this movie. They took two of the biggest stars of all time out into, you know, the African jungle, essentially, on the river. Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart's wife, goes along with the crew. She ends up basically playing nursemaid to the whole crew because they all come down with malaria and dysentery and everything else. So it was a crazy production. And we're going to get into talking about that production a little bit. But before we get any further, it is time for our favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, You know, many times it's Brad's first time watching the movie, and that is the case today. So, Brad, can you break down a spoiler filled synopsis of the movie The African Queen for our listeners? So, yeah. So Humphrey Bogart is a ship captain that kind of trades supplies up and down um, a, a large trade river in Africa, and he's visiting a Methodist outpost. There's these two Methodist missionaries that are British and they live there and they're uh, ministering to the to the native African population there, and while they're there, World War One breaks out, and they burn down the village, and the the guy who's a missionary there goes crazy and dies somehow, his brain just snaps, and so Catherine Hepburn decides to travel with Humphrey Bogart so that they can go to this big old lake and destroy this German ship. Uh, and if that sounds absurd to you, don't worry. When you watch the movie, it will st- still seem very absurd. But they decide <laughs> to travel down the river and try to blow up this ship. And while they are traveling there, they face all sorts of problems. The boat, you know, the rudder gets destroyed and they have to, like, fix things. And there's storms and there's uh, the ship gets beached at one point And, you know, but lo and behold, by the end of the movie, they have fallen in love and they destroy the ship and they get off scot-free. And they're really they're really happy about it, man. They they get married. Yeah, this movie is it's a really interesting kind of adventure movie. And I, I don't make to make light of World War One, but the way that it's presented as kind of a like a peripheral thing in this movie, this is a very lighthearted movie. I mean, it's a movie about two people who are a little bit older than your conventional movie stars falling in love. It's an unconventional romance. It's an adventure movie. It's these two people sailing down this treacherous river and encountering all sorts of natural obstacles, as well as trying to avoid detection. You know, it has the same sort of DNA as as your favorite adventure movies of kind of like an Indiana Jones, things like that. But, Brad, I mean, 
do you think it's wrong for me to characterize this as a very lighthearted movie? No, it definitely is. I, I think I think there's a few notes at the start that make you feel like it's going to be serious. But once they get onto the river, you quickly realize that this movie is just going to be full of banter back and forth between Bogey and Hepburn. And that the movie is really just them. You know, we we just reviewed Life of Pi a little bit ago. And that movie is about a tiger and a young Indian boy on a boat together. This movie is just about Humphrey Bogart hanging out with Catherine Hepburn and seeing what kind of shenanigans they can get into. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now, and they only have eight people listed in the whole cast as having speaking roles. And five of those are people on the German warship that they end up on the last 10 minutes of the movie. So honestly, the only three real individuals in this film are Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn, and Robert Morley, who plays Catherine Hepburn's brother, the missionary. And he's out of the movie in the first, I'd say, 15 minutes. So this really is a film that almost completely solely features Bogey and Catherine Hepburn. And I, I will say, Bob, you, you brought up her brother, the uh, Methodist missionary. I, I'm just going to start this episode off. <laughs> his His performance was horrendously bad. Oh, interesting. I didn't think this. I didn't think so. Oh, my gosh. His eyes are always just blatantly wide open like, oh, what is happening here? I cannot understand it. I'm a poor British man in Africa. I absolutely despised him. I, I really like Bogey. <laughs> I really like Catherine Hepburn. But what I, you said his name was Robert Morley. Yeah. He was really one of the worst performances I've seen in a movie in a long time. It it kind of reminds me of Awakenings when they got the actual like real life psychiatrist doctor to play a role in the film. Do you remember who I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it reminded me of that. It felt that overacted and forced. And I, I could not so stand him. So I was glad that he died like 10 minutes into the movie, but it, it was painful to watch him act. Well, Brad, I'll say this. I, I don't I don't really agree with you, but I, I agree with kind of the spirit behind what you're saying, because I think that the screenplay for this movie, which was written by John Huston, as well as Pulitzer Prize winner James Agee, this screenplay really paints in broad strokes. Everyone who's not Bogey and Hepburn is a caricature, and that includes the native Africans in the movie, which I'm sure we're going to get around to talking about. But I think... For as far as Robert Morley goes in his performance as Hepburn's brother, I don't know that it's necessarily that he's giving a bad performance as much as he's written as this one dimensional, cartoonishly pious and offended, straight laced British man. And he's constantly reacting to the things around him. He looks like he belongs in like a Marx Brothers movie. And I think, you know, if you're going to fault his performance for that. You could say that he goes over the top with it a little bit, but I honestly think that the biggest flaw with this film is that the script doesn't really treat anybody except the two leads as human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think I look back, though, and I, I look at Double Indemnity, which we just reviewed a week ago, and none of the characters in that movie came across as caricatures. All the characters have their own smart, witty dialogue, and I, and I get that you have Billy Wilder writing for you. But I just think the movie could have been much better off if this Methodist missionary didn't come off as such a buffoon. I, like, I really think that the movie was done a disservice by how cartoonish his performance was. Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. And before we get any further into the performances, Brad, I just want to make a couple quick points about the movie itself. 
You know, when this movie came on, I watched it on Amazon Prime last night. Uh, it, it has been restored. I think in 2010, they restored the film. And I have to say, like from a cinematography standpoint, the movie looks pristine. It is just a beautifully shot film. And one thing that I really love about John Huston is that you can't quite pin him down by a certain style of filmmaking. We, we saw The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and I think this movie has some similarities to that in the way that it's filmed and in the sort of thematic things going on. But then you have other movies that he made, like The Maltese Falcon, which is completely different than this, looks different than this. It's like an early film noir. But one thing that I loved about what Houston does in this movie with his director of photography, Jack Cardiff, they make you feel the heat and the humidity of Africa in this movie. I think from the beginning, they they really, really utilize the color palette well. Everybody's always sweaty. Everybody's always dirty. And I felt like you really could get the sense of like the sights, the the smells, the feel of what it would be like to be on this river in Africa. I was going to say, if there's a redeeming quality to this movie, it's how raw the movie is, right? When you just have shots of the African wilderness and a giraffe and hippos and all these things, it almost feels like it should be a documentary and you have like a soft British voice come over and say, the wild hippopotamus is looking for his midday meal. But will the giraffe escape its wrath? Like, <laughs> like I feel like you should have had that happen halfway through this movie. And and I, I think that's a good thing. I, I think the movie is redeemed by the fact that it's just very honest about how difficult it would be to take a small steamboat down a river in the middle of the heart of Africa. So I think that that's definitely a strong redeeming quality of the movie, but that doesn't have anything to do with the acting, with the script, with any of those elements. And I think that that's where this movie really struggles. So it's not that I don't like this movie. It's just that there's a lot of things where I'm kind of like, I don't know if a lot of time and effort was put into what normally would be considered important movie elements as much as it was John Huston going, yeah, let's get raw and real and dirty and just see what we can get out here in Africa. Yeah, Brad, and that's exactly the point that I was thinking as you were talking. At some point, I had to start wondering, I wonder how much of this movie was just an excuse for John Huston to get financial backing to give himself a trip to Africa so that he could go see the sights <laughs> and hunt wild game in a really sketchy way. Do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah. And I, th I think part of it with this movie, too, is that the word that kept coming up for me as I watched this movie was trifle. It's a very inoffensive movie in terms of the effect it has on you. It's a very pleasant movie to watch. It's rousing. It's fun. And yet nothing in it really seems to have any weight to it. It, it doesn't really say anything about the world around us. It doesn't really leave you with any sort of overarching message. It's just like a fun Saturday afternoon movie that I feel like, it, you know, it could be on in between Westerns on AMC and I'd watch it and I'd enjoy it. And I don't really know that it goes any further than that. You mean you want to go on? Naturally. This, you're crazy. I beg your pardon? You know what would have happened if we'd come up against one of them rocks? But we didn't. I must say I'm filled with admiration for your skill, Mr. Allnut. Do you suppose after I've practiced steering a bit, that someday I might try? Miss, let me tell you something. Them rapids ain't nothing to watch out in front of us. On second thoughts, I wouldn't call them rapids at all. I can hardly wait. But, Miss... Now that I've had a taste of it, I don't wonder you love voting, Mr. Allnut. Yeah, I, I think if you view it in that lens, there is a beauty to the movie. 
I just, I, I don't know. Like, isn't this commonly considered like one of the 100 best movies of all time and that, or, or am I off base in that? No, you're absolutely not. And, and again, I think this is where the reputation of the movie comes into play. I, I really do think, and I don't have any like hard evidence for this, but I really do think that the story behind the movie has fed the legend of the movie. You know, this was one of the first movies to be shot on location in such dangerous circumstances. And the fact that they got back alive at all kind of a thing was like, that's the big story. This is the movie that Humphrey Bogart finally wins his one and only Oscar for. So there's a lot of things that prop up the mythology of this film. When the American Film Institute came out with their list of the 100 greatest films in 1998, The African Queen was actually ranked number 17 of all time. <laughs> yeah. When And so 10 years later, when they redid the list as a 10th anniversary special, it had fallen all the way to number 65, which makes me think, I don't know, would it even be included today? But I think people are kind of starting to wake up to the fact that the legend of this film is bigger than maybe the film itself is. And I think people are starting to reevaluate the movie on its own terms and not just that it's this classic legendary story about how movies got made. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> There, There is an admiration of, man, Bogart and Hepburn and the crew went through a lot to make this movie. But in the end, I think I would respect it a lot more if it had a good script. And if it wasn't, it didn't feel like, even Bogart, I feel like he's overacting through a lot of the movie. I, I just, I really struggle with a lot of aspects of this movie and... This might sound harsh, but I don't really care what they went through to make the movie. I just want to see a good product. And in my mm. mind, I saw a really average 1950s movie. It wasn't anything impressive to me. Yeah. And we keep coming back to this idea of the script. And part of the script it isn't just the dialogue or the direction behind it, but it's the overall story. And I feel like this is one of those stories that, you know, I've I've talked a few times about the the screenwriting tips that I heard once about you always want each scene to lead into the next with a this happened, so this happens, or this happens, but this happens. And it, it creates a really natural progression of each story beat influencing the next. And they said you always want to avoid a story that goes this happens and this happens and this happens because nothing's connected. There's no there's no momentum. There's no arc being told. And this is one of those movies that I kind of feel like that's the case. It's like a, a poor man's sort of Indiana Jones, where they, they get on this boat after the village has been burned and they have to face these natural obstacles. And it's like, OK, you know, now they're facing mosquitoes. Well, we got out of the mosquitoes. So now they're facing leeches. Well, we got away from the leeches. Well, now there's some rapids and they got out of the rapids. Well, now they have to go by this German fort that's shooting at them. Well, they get by that. And then every time they're not getting sucked up by rapids. Well, now we need a scene where they're falling in love so that something's happening. And it just kind of seems like. After the fourth or fifth kind of perilous situation that they get in, it just kind of seems repetitive. And you know that there really isn't any stakes because you know both of them are going to get to the destination that they're supposed to get to by the end of the film. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the sense that if you took each and every obstacle and love scene that happens in between them leaving on the African Queen to them blowing up the German boat... You could just, you honestly could just piecemeal it and go, yeah, let's just put this one here and that one there. And you could have done the German fort very first at the start of, uh, at the start as the first obstacle, or you could have done it as the last obstacle and it wouldn't have mattered. So you jump into that and you go, well, 
you're just throwing a bunch of random stuff together. I could do that. Like I, I could just write you like, yeah, this bad thing could happen and that bad thing could happen. And, and uh, there's no sense of movement. And I think one of the things that reinforces the lack of movement is how suddenly Hepburn and Bogey fall in love with each other. One minute they're like not at each other's throats, but they're not real happy with each other. And then all of a sudden Bogart shaves and Hepburn is calling him Charlie, Charlie, dear, how are you? And they're just deeply, madly in love. And I'm just like, what is going on in this script? It doesn't have any sense of nuance. It doesn't have any sense of subtlety. It's just everything is very obvious and put in your face. And man, I found myself halfway through the movie going like, "Uh, okay, I get it. Just shove the romance in my face. That's fine. But it gets really tiresome after a while. So I don't think that I'm going to be as as down on this movie as you are. Like just listening to, to the language you're using to describe it. I don't disagree with you, but I do think that it's a little bit more effective than maybe you're letting on. And I think part of the reason for that, Brad, is the two leads that we have. If it wasn't Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn in the lead, and I'm not even talking about their chemistry, which is something we can get into in the second half, but just their ability to take words written on a page and make them at least seem plausible. I think this would be an actively bad movie if it wasn't for them, because you're right. Like the romance aspect is very rushed. There is not a lot of characterization going on. You really don't find out very much about either of these two people at all. You don't learn anything about their backstories. And yet I think that especially Catherine Hepburn, like her ability to emote, her ability to that you can see what's going on under the surface in her eyes and the way she's she's angry or she's tearing up because she's hurt. I think they can convey so much more than what they were even given on the page that it does elevate the script to at least making a good movie, in my opinion. Yeah, Bob, I I don't disagree. I I liked Bogart's performance less than Hepburn's because it felt like Bogart was he was somewhere in between being Rick from Casablanca and being uh, Dobbs in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Like Hmm. he's kind of smooth and suave. And yet he's also kind of a dirty tramp, like homeless guy. I don't know exactly what he's going for in this movie. And it doesn't, it feels like by splitting himself between being this, this kind of weird guy that roams the African river and this smooth, suave character, it feels like you get a lesser performance from him because of that. I, I really, I must say, if there is a redeeming quality to this movie, it's Catherine Hepburn. Um, but even her performance, I, I just think some of the lines that she was given to deliver are just kind of ridiculous and unbelievable. And and especially like Bogart points it out. And so it's almost like a funny part of the script where Bogart's like, listen, now for every one funny idea I've had, you've had funny ideas that are 10 steps from my kind of funny. Yes, Mr. Ornott. All this foolish talk about the Louisa going down the river. What do you mean? I mean, we ain't going to do nothing of the sort. Of course we are. What an absurd idea. What an absurd idea. What an absurd idea. Lady, you got ten absurd ideas for my one. <laughs> and and I kind of agree that the entire plot to destroy this German boat just feels so, so forced that I feel bad that Catherine had to deliver those lines. But in general, when she's able to just kind of sit back and stop worrying about the plot, and just worry about the love story between her and Humphrey. 
I really do think that she turns in a spectacular performance. Yeah. Well, and Brad, I want to get into talking about these performances a little bit more in the second half because I I took tons of notes, especially on Katherine Hepburn. I really was blown away with her performance in this movie. Uh, But for now, I think maybe it's time for us to hit pause and to try this Bogart's Irish whiskey. So today we are reviewing Bogart's Irish Whiskey. Now, this is a brand, Bogart's, that is a partnership between the Humphrey Bogart estate, which is run by his son, Stephen Bogart, and a a corporation called Rock Drinks, which is owned by a billionaire who is also the founder of Patron Tequila. And so they came up with this idea to kind of brand a bunch of different spirits with the Humphrey Bogart name. They make a gin, they make a vodka, uh, I think they make a rum, and they make this Irish whiskey. Now, this Irish whiskey is a blend of single malt Irish whiskey and grain whiskey, so it is a blended whiskey. One of the big things about Irish whiskey is that it has to be aged for three years in Ireland. It has to be produced, distilled, and aged in Ireland. And so they actually do. They source this whiskey from Ireland, but it's aged there for three years, and then they bring it over to California, where they finish it in X bourbon barrels for an unspecified amount of time before they put it in the bottles. Now, Bob, I have a question. It, yeah, go ahead. Like, who makes these rules? Is this like an American rule that to call it an Irish whiskey, it has to be bottled in Ireland? Is that a rule in Ireland? Like, who decides that? Great question. So this is actually an Irish rule. Just like America has dictated what it means to be a bourbon, Ireland has dictated what it means to be an Irish whiskey. So there's all kinds of rules for like the the alcohol by volume that it has to be distilled to and how long it has to be aged and what kind of barrels have to be used, things like that. I will say with Irish whiskey, they don't have to use new barrels if they don't want to. Uh, and there's different varieties, just like with scotches. We, you know, we talked about the difference between malt scotch and grain scotch, between single malt and blended malt, things like that. Those are all true as well of Irish whiskey. So realistically, though, could some American distillery say that they're distilling an Irish whiskey because it tastes kind of like an Irish whiskey? Because like if I like who enforces the rules, does America also enforce like, no, you can't call that an Irish whiskey because it doesn't conform to these standards. There's some regulating body. It looks like it's the Irish Department of Agriculture, but they do have a rule that says you cannot label, package, sell or advertise or promote in any way to suggest that your whiskey is an Irish whiskey unless it meets all of the relevant requirements of Irish whiskey. So it sounds like if you start marketing your product as an Irish whiskey and you're not at least getting the stuff from Ireland and selling it over here, you're going to get sued by Ireland's Department of Agriculture. Okay. No, I'm down with that. It's just stuff like that is always curious to me. Yeah, for sure. And these are the things that they don't tell you on the bottle, probably because it would cost a lot to put that on a label. But, you know, (laughs) the smallest like writing (laughs) on a label ever. 
So yeah, this this Bogart's Irish whiskey is blended. It's three years old. It's got some some aging and bourbon casks as well. I'm really excited to get into trying it. Brad, you're a huge fan of Irish whiskey. I like some Irish whiskeys, others I'm cooler on. So let's let's get into it, man. What are you picking up on the nose of this Bogart's Irish whiskey? Honestly, it's a beautiful nose. There's a little bit of hint of like honey. Almost it almost reminds me of like a graham cracker type nose. And along with it, there are a few deeper notes. I feel like I get a little bit of plum on it, something kind of a deeper fruity nose to it. It's a really refreshing nose, and I'm going to give it an an 8 out of 10 on the nose. When I was nosing this, Brad, it took me probably three solid minutes to try to figure out what this prominent note was that I was getting. Because it was it was fruity, but in a, almost like an artificial way. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I could tell that it was like a candy fruit scent as opposed to like, a, you know, an actual picking a, a peach off the tree or something like that. And I was racking my brain and going back through all the memories of eating candy that I've ever had. I'm going to go like real obscure with you. All right. When I was a kid and I would go through the bank teller line with my mom, like the ATM, and if they'd see that there was a kid in the car, they would always send out these lollipops, these uh, suckers. And it was the suckers that have the little safety thing on the end, like the loop for the popsicle or for the sucker stick that you put oh, your yeah. finger through so that you don't choke as a kid. Yeah, dude. It's, it's that scent, Brad. It's the scent of an orange safety lollipop. It took me forever to figure it out. But as soon as I did, I was like, oh my gosh, it's this wonderful, sugary, almost like an orange popsicle kind of scent to it. And and it is just this beautiful sort of syrupy aroma on top of everything you're talking about. You do get some of that, the malty, grainy sort of thing that you get from it. You do have a little bit of that honey sweet that you're talking about as well. But for me, there was also this candy, syrupy, orange scent as well. I loved this nose. I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of 10 on the nose. Yeah, and and when you move into the taste, I think that you just have this beautiful mixture of that those sweet notes mixed with those fruity notes. It's not spicy. It's not in any way going to be harsh. This, in my mind, is the epitome of what an Irish whiskey should be. It's smooth. It's refreshing. It's sippable. I, I just really, really love this palette. There's a little bit of that depth with that plum flavor that I was thinking of earlier. Bob, what are you picking up on the taste? So I'm having a different experience on the taste than you are, Brad. I actually think that all of the sweetness on the nose is not present at all in the taste. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it is a very drastic difference between the nose and the taste for me. I get a ton of the malt on this. I get a, a lot of barley. Um it's almost kind of scotchy in a way. And, you know, we talk about how sometimes Irish whiskey and like a blended scotch kind of have those same flavors that they share in common with each other. This definitely has that. I'm not saying it's sour. It's definitely not sour. It's definitely not bitter. It's just unsweet. And you get this really great kind of dark grain body to it on the tongue. It has a really good mouthfeel. Like it's definitely not super thin. I do think you can tell that it's 80 proof. It's not a lot of alcohol. But it is an enjoyable taste, even though it's not super sweet. I'm going to give it a six on the taste. Well, I'm I'm going to stick it an eight on the taste. I, I really enjoy this palette. And for me, the finish is where I picked up more of those grainy notes that you were talking about. I feel like you just get some beautiful notes of malted barley and grains. And that's where I feel like the smoothness kind of peters out into getting what those raw grains are offering. 
but it doesn't it doesn't sit on your on your palate for a long time afterwards. It finishes smooth. I, I think I'm gonna give it a seven on the finish. Yeah, so I think a lot of what's on the taste carries through to the finish for me. It's definitely darker, it's definitely less sweet. I do find like a really, really pleasant burn going down. It's not like what we would call a Kentucky hug with bourbon. It doesn't feel like there's alcohol stuck in my esophagus, but it definitely makes itself known. And I really like that because, again, this is an 80 proof whiskey, so it's on the lowest possible end of what it would take to be called an Irish whiskey. And it doesn't really make itself known from an alcohol point of view until after you swallow and that finish. The finish is fairly lasting. It's definitely a mouthwatering finish. It's not super dry. I really appreciate this finish. I'm going to give it a six and a half on the finish. I think this is a solid whiskey all around so far, Brad. I do too. And when I when I come to balance to kind of finish off our scores for the tasting part of it, I think this is a really well-balanced whiskey. Uh, you are right, Bob, in saying that the nose promises a little more sweetness than you get. But I don't really consider that a flaw in this whiskey. The balance isn't the place where this whiskey shines, but I'm still going to give it a 7 out of 10 on balance. Yeah, I think that we a few weeks ago, we defined our, our definitions of what balance is. And you were actually a little bit more bullish on saying that you think it has to do with consistency, that if you pick up a note in the nose, that it better be there on the taste. I've never been that guy. I will say that it is pretty drastic, the difference between the nose and the taste. Very few of the notes that I got on the nose actually carried over to the taste. However, I think this was a solid whiskey all the way through. The nose was spectacular. The taste was was pretty good. And the finish was good. And so because of that, I'm going to give it a I'm going to give it a six on balance. And that takes us to overall value. And this is where things get a little bit tricky, Brad, because Bogart Spirits is based out of California. It's not sold in the state of Ohio. I actually reached out to their rep that we've been working with, and I haven't heard back as far as what their distribution is. So I don't know what states in the union you can walk into a liquor store and find a bottle of Bogart's on the shelf. They sell it on their website. But, you know, for now, I think we have to go off of the assumption that maybe it's not for sale in any state on the shelf. And, and we're just directing people to the Bogart's Spirits website. On their website, this bottle costs $34.99 which I think is a really reasonable price for an Irish whiskey, especially one that's been aged in Ireland, imported, and then finished in bourbon barrels. They've clearly done their work on this. I think it's a good, solid whiskey. And I want to hear before I give a score, Brad, what would you give this on value at a $34.99 price tag? Honestly, Bob, I, I think that if this was just $5 cheaper, I would probably give it a 10 out of 10. Like if this was a $30 whiskey, I would go, holy cow, this is like perfect value. As it is, I, $35 is just on that edge of, well, I'd buy it every once in a while. But honestly, Bob, I think this is really good value. I And when I say really good, I mean 9 out of 10 this is a great value whiskey. I think it's eminently drinkable, smooth, and delicious. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah, so this is where I really struggle, Brad, because if you're buying it online, you know, we're, we're saying that it's $35, but that also means that you're going to have to pay for shipping. At $35, I think I would give this like an 8 out of 10 on value. I think it's a really, really solid Irish whiskey. At $45, including shipping, things change really quickly for me. So I want to say I'm going to score this based off of the actual price tag, the $34.99. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, but buyer beware, 
if this is not sold on the shelf near you, you're going to have to pay the shipping costs and you have to factor that in for yourself as far as is this worth $45 or whatever else more it might be as opposed to the $34.99 price tag. Yeah, Bob, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. If you can buy this in store for $35, it's a 9 out of 10. If this is a $45 whiskey, my score would honestly drop to about a 6.5 or a 7 out of 10. Um, $45, you're starting to get to that point where like, eh, this I might buy this once and go in with two or three friends and we'll share it. But $35 is a good price. So, Brad, what's that bringing you out to as far as your final score? Well, if you're buying it in store, then my final score comes to a 39 out of 50. Yeah, I figured this would be pretty high for you, Brad. I know how much you love your Irish whiskey. This is bringing me out to a 34 out of 50. I do think this was a really, really good, a solid whiskey. We really appreciate Bogarts for sending this to us. It's been really fun to pair it up with an actor for a movie. So we appreciate the opportunity. That brings us to a 73 out of 100 or a 36.5 out of 50. I would wholeheartedly recommend this. Brad, are you recommending? Oh, 100%. It's a really delicious whiskey. If you can get your hands on it, by all means, go for it. All right. Well, what do you say we carry this goodwill into the second half of our episode on the African Queen? Let's get to it. So that was Bogart's Irish Whiskey, a whiskey that we both really enjoyed and heartily recommended. We're getting back into talking about the African Queen. And before we left off, Brad, it sounded like your true feelings about this movie were really starting to come out. So I tried to rein us in a little bit and get us to focus on the acting in this movie. You talked about the performance of the brother in this movie. I, I, I don't disagree with you on that, but I will say that I think both of the lead performances in this film are fantastic, and especially Katherine Hepburn. I've seen this movie probably between five and ten times, and it's always been a fun watch for me. It's one of those movies I can kind of throw on, and if I want to pay attention, like, great, and if not, it's still entertaining. This time, watching Katherine Hepburn react to what Bogart is doing to her. In the scene where they've burned down the village, her brother has just died, and Bogart, as a, you know, this this drunk slob comes wandering in, and she has to break the news to him that her brother has died, and he's just kind of like, oh, well, sorry, you got a spade, I'll bury him for you. The absolute contempt that this woman has for Bogart is so obvious in her eyes. And this is one of the great things about Hepburn is just how expressive her face can be and how she can use it so subtly. Like she doesn't have to do these big over the top reactions when they're on the boat and and he gets drunk and he calls her a skinny old maid and you see her start to break down and internalize these insults because you know that this is something she's insecure about. Her brother had been kind of rambling as, as he was disoriented on his deathbed about how his sister's not very pretty, but she could be a missionary too. So you know this is something that her character feels really, really deeply. And then the moment where they finally have a breakthrough, where he comes over and puts his hand on her shoulder, and she 
decides to hold his hand. You can see that she's almost crying as she does it, that she's finally found a place of forgiveness, that she's finally found it in herself to love this man, that she's finally found a romance that that her character has clearly been longing for in her life. I think she's able to portray things about this character that aren't even there on the page. I don't disagree with you. I think that Hepburn really is a spectacular actress. And beyond a spectacular actress, I think she's one of the best we've ever had. The problem for me is that, like, even in the scene where her brother is, well, she's not a very comely woman, but she might be good for the missions field. The lines that he speaks and the way he delivers them are so unbelievable to real life that for me, it almost took me out of the movie so deeply that like you almost miss what a good performance that she is giving. And unfortunately, I I kind of feel the same way about Bogart. I just when I watch Bogart in this movie, his his lines that he gets are just so ridiculous and out there. That whether or not Bogart delivers them well, the the script is so ridiculous that I think it draws me away from what an amazing performance Hepburn is giving. And so I struggle to to see, is she just giving a great performance or is, is her performance just good in despite of a terrible script? Yeah, and I honestly, I think that's true of both of the leads because th- this would not be the movie that I would have picked for Humphrey Bogart to win an Oscar for. Oh, dude, right. I mean, not at all. And a lot of people at the time even thought that this was kind of a makeup Oscar for the one that he wasn't even nominated for, for Treasure of the Sierra Madre in 1948. You know, he'd made a couple films in the interim. He was still one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. I think that he got a lot of the popular vote at this time. So in, in 1951, uh, Marlon Brando burst on the scene. He had been in just one or two movies, and then he comes out with A Streetcar Named Desire, He's a super buff, muscular, method actor. It's a completely new thing in Hollywood. He's, you know, he's on the street screaming Stella. It's an iconic moment. But a lot of people in Hollywood, the, the sort of old guard in Hollywood, were not prepared to vote for Marlon Brando as best actor. And I think that Humphrey Bogart really reaped the benefits of that. I always like to play this sort of mental game of what what would have been, because if he had just gotten the Oscar for Treasure the Sierra Madre like he should have gotten, or even for Casablanca back in 1942 like he should have gotten, uh, I think Marlon Brando probably would have taken home the Oscar in this year. And this is the game that the Oscar plays. They always kind of give awards for lifetime achievement over what's actually happening in the moment. And that's not to say that Bogart is bad in this movie. I think he's actually quite good. But to some degree, he's just playing the Humphrey Bogart character that that you were referencing earlier. It's like somewhere in between uh, the hard-edged sort of gangster roles that he played earlier in his career and the sort of sloppy, loud, aggressive type that he played in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Honestly, Bob, the the problem with this performance is that it it just it's a caricature of a real person. I think that Hepburn was the only one who received a script that was somewhat realistic, but like, you know, one of both of our favorite films of all time, It's a Wonderful Life, you have this one character in that movie who continually comes back to uh, Jimmy Stewart and, you know, do you remember who I'm talking about where he goes, hee-haw, hee-haw, what's up, what's up, how you doing? That's who I thought of when... Bogey is like trying to imitate these hippopotamuses and he's jumping up and down. And I just thought, is this what we're reducing one of the greatest stars in Hollywood history to? 
<laughs> it just felt so ridiculous. Like, it's fine and it's a wonderful life for a minor character to be ridiculous and make strange childlike noises out of his mouth. But it's another thing to make one of the greatest actors of all time to do it in a movie where, like you said, he and Hepburn are the only real people in the movie. Bob, I'm just going to sum it up. I hate this script. Yeah. I (laughs) I really, really hate it. And it, it causes me... It causes me conniptions to no end to think about what could have been with this movie if it had a good script. Yeah, and and I think it's kind of surprising, I think, the degree that this script doesn't work because it has some incredible screenwriters behind it. It's adapted from a novel. Like, this should this should work better than it does. And I think the, the key to this movie, in terms of, like, how I would sum it up, Brad, is good enough. Like, it's a good enough movie. It's enjoyable. Yeah. It's got serviceable performances from two of the best actors of all time. Them, yes, them yeah. turning in their B game is the A game of anyone else. Uh, but right. but kind of to break it down here, Brad, I think I'm going to give my final score on this movie. I don't dislike this movie. I think I probably like it more than you do. I find it enjoyable. I think it's worth seeing. I think it's worth, you know, if, you, if you're a classic movie person, it's definitely worth owning. But I don't think it's any more than a seven and a half. This is like a, a three out of four star kind of movie. It's held up okay over the last almost 70 years now, but it just doesn't have any depth to it. And I used that word earlier, trifle, to describe it. And I think this is just a fun, enjoyable trifle of a movie. I I would never put it anywhere near a, a hundred best films of all time list. I don't even know if this would be like a top five Bogart for me. But, you know, I, I'm anxious to hear what you think, Brad, but I would give it a seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, I, you know, going into this, I was thinking I would give it anywhere from a six to a seven. But honestly, you know, as an external processor, I reserve the right to change my opinion after I've talked about my opinion. <laughs> so honestly, Bob, the the more I look at this movie and the more I consider just how genuinely awful this script is, you know, we didn't get into it, but I think that the racial profiling and treatment of Native Africans is beyond bad. It's it's actually really offensive and really horrendous. I just really struggle with this movie. I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. And I, honestly, I think that Bogart and Hepburn turn in great performances for what they were given. And the only reason this movie is a 5 out of 10 for me is because their performances buoy it up to that. Like you said, it's just kind of a fun romp of a movie but there's a lot of problems with it and i'm not going to recommend it wow so we're divided on a movie for the first time uh this season brad's not recommending i am recommending but we want to know what you have to say this is a classic film i imagine that a lot of people listening brad are going to be fans of this movie so if you'd like to respond to what either of us think of this film you can find us on social media we're on facebook twitter or instagram at film whiskey or you can give us a call Leave us a voice message with your thoughts on the African Queen. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or check us out on our Anchor.fm page. Leave us a voicemail right there online, and we'll put you on the air. Next week, we're going to be coming back into modern times, Brad, for the film that brought Martin Scorsese his one and only Best Director Oscar, 2006's The Departed. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>